Bhagavato Arahato Samha Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samha Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samha Sambhutasa Buddhang Namang Sanghang Namasahami We've got quite a group here tonight. It's a good turnout for New Year's Eve, for a monastery. <laughs> I've thrown parties in a house with champagne and had fewer people turn up in this. <laughs> so I'm, you know, we're, we're so glad to have you all here. And the life of the monastery depends on its participants. And so everybody who comes here to sincerely practice is helping us all carry forward the Buddhist teachings. So, uh, this is a fabulous thing to be doing as our last formal dedicated act of the year. Hardly gets better than that in a human life. It's the last day of 2018. Many people will be glad of this. 2018 will pass into the past, and now 2019 is like a fresh slate. Maybe, maybe only good things will happen in 2019. Maybe not, though. <laughs> so whatever happens politically or economically or otherwise in the world in 2019, um, well, we can't really predict other than it's probably going to be colorful and variable, variegated, and that we won't have a whole lot of control over it. And events will come along and present themselves to us and we'll simply have to respond as best we can to the events that come to us. That's what we had to do this year, right? All of 2018 has just been one damn thing after another. And so uh, we got through it though. Traditionally, the uh, end of the year in our culture is a kind of time to make determinations for the coming year. And maybe to look back over the last year and <coughs> consider what, uh, what went right and what went wrong. And that's, um, that can be a helpful thing to, to check out. <clears throat> but if you look at it from the perspective of your practice, what's maybe the most helpful to do is simply focus on mostly on what went right. And the fact that you're here shows that something really right happened in 2018. Uh, the fact that you're practicing at all. That's really good, uh, that's really good performance. I congratulate everyone because you could be doing so many other things and that might not be so helpful and so beneficial. We always have a choice to direct the mind towards what's good, what's wholesome, what's uplifting, what's, what's uh, supportive, encouraging, 
because there's always something in our in our immediate present or the very recent past that we can look at and consider and let fill our awareness. So in 2018, you spent some time visiting monasteries. You spent some time meditating. You spent some time, some time hearing about the Dhamma, or pondering the Dhamma on your own, maybe going on retreat. That's really, really good. That's very good Kama. That inclines the mind the right way. That trains the mind. And training the mind is really what it's, what it's all about. And so even when we're doing a reflection about how the last year went, it's another opportunity to undertake the practice of acknowledging what didn't work, but really focusing our, our attention on what did work and what is good, what is worthwhile, and reinforcing that. Our minds are more malleable than we think. We have this impression, we can, it's easy to get the impression that our minds are sort of are kind of stuck, kind of static, um, unchanging, uh, maybe stubborn, rock-like. And uh, we lose sight of the fact that our minds are, are actually very, very dynamic. Um, you've seen for sure that uh, a single word or phrase or the appearance of a person or a glance or some body language can throw the mind into a different mood entirely. Uh, can throw you into a tailspin or can cause the heart to be buoyant, just depending on who it is and what the particulars of the circumstance are. It doesn't take very much. And that's how much, that's how malleable our minds can be. And so we're, we're always being affected by our environment, being affected by the people around us. But the most important thing about what affects us is not entirely what happens outside, but how we attend to it. If we attend with wisdom, then pretty much whatever happens outside of us can be framed, uh, can be experienced as something which is worth, worth, worth our attention, worthwhile, something which helps us. So even when something painful or difficult or maybe, maybe something which would conventionally be labeled as bad happens to us. Um, we have the potential, the, the tools, this, this practice gives us the tools to take that bad thing and use it in a way to reinforce our practice and reinforce our orientation. Uh, I'm trying to think of something bad that happened to me recently. And uh, I'm not coming up with anything. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was going to give like some pithy personal example, and it's just not working. Um, I don't know if that's just the result of practice or. Um, Failing cognitive faculties, or you know, I can't, I can't exactly tell. Um, 
but uh, maybe I'll come up with a more hypothetical example or something from, from earlier on in my life. Um, uh, here's, here's something that's coming up. I, I, I was on retreat, and this is something which is um, maybe one of the most powerful learning environments is to go on retreat. On retreat, you, uh, you pretty much dedicate the majority of your time during the days that you're on retreat to uh, developing mindfulness and concentration. And so you do sitting meditation and you do walking meditation and then you do more sitting and more walking and you just keep sitting and walking and then when it's time to eat, you just eat with as much mindfulness as you can. When it's time to do anything, you try to do it with as much mindfulness as you can. And this creates a um, what you might see as a kind of artificial environment. And it is artificial. It's not, it's not something you can sustain for your whole life. But I, I've always likened it a little bit to like uh, being a person who's interested in, in being a better tennis player. You have to, you know, you have, maybe you play tennis during the, on weekends or something. You want to, get, you want to improve your game. And so uh, during the summer, you decide to go to a tennis camp. And so in the morning, you play some tennis. And then around lunchtime, you talk about tennis. And then you play some more tennis. And you work on your serve, work on your return, work on your backhand spend time kind of working on each one of these skills. And you put, you know, three weeks into that, and you will definitely come back as a much better tennis player. Same thing goes for mindfulness and concentration. You take some time out of your normal year, and you put yourself in this artificial environment and really, really go at it with as much uh, enthusiasm and motivation and uh, diligence as you can muster. It will change you. It will give you a different experience. And so it's, uh, but it's not necessarily fun. It's not necessarily pleasant. Because the mind gets uh, fed up with it at a certain point and wants to do something different. And hopefully by that point, <clears throat> your mindfulness and concentration is good enough to see the mind doing that and restrain it from, from getting lost in, in various fantasies. So here I am in retreat, <clears throat> and it's uh, in, in the middle part of California, really hot during the summer, the hills of Santa Cruz. The daytime temperatures were 40s, something like that. I wasn't enjoying it very much, but I was practicing as best I could. And um, I picked out a really nice shady walking path for myself. This was in a kind of rural, hilly area of, the, of Santa Cruz, which is south of San Francisco. And it, uh, even though the temperatures were really high, as long as I could get some shade, uh, and shade was kind of scarce. It was hilly, but it wasn't very well treed. And uh, I found a you know, pretty good spot, several trees in a row, and I could sort of do walking meditation here. And then I had a tent. Uh, I was camping on this retreat. And I found a spot where I could kind of keep my tent in the shade most of the day. Uh, so my tent wouldn't get overheated during the day. So everything's perfect. You know, I had arranged all the details to suit myself. And about, oh, I don't know, four or five days into the retreat, uh, a new retreatant arrived. And he parked his car in my walking path. <laughs> now, of course, the walking path didn't have my name on it. There's no sort of designation. It was just you pick out some random spot of the terrain, and you use it as a walking path. 
And, uh, but I was, you know, I was just really upset about this. So I was like, you know, my mind was kind of going on with like, you know, doesn't, how can you just park his car in like this great spot? I'm using it for a walking path. Couldn't he see my, the footprints that I have? Hundreds of times walking back and forth on here. You know, this, this kind of guy comes in and is brutalizing my retreat. I was kind of complaining in my mind about how terrible this guy is for parking there. And I, I never actually found out who it was. It was just like somebody has his car. And I knew it was a man because I saw him sort of as a, as a silhouette once kind of going back to the car to get something out of the car. And of course, I had to find a new walking path. And so you could say, and that, that's an event of something bad happening. Uh, and as, as these thoughts were coming up in my mind, uh, I had developed enough mindfulness to see them very clearly as thoughts that were just arising in my mind because of the contact, because of that event. So I could just look away from the car and look at some trees over here and I'd see thoughts being triggered by the, the appearance of those trees. You know, eucalyptus trees, you know, why did they plant them here? This is it's dangerous. You know, they, they produce a, they shed their bark and they create a fire hazard. And, and my mind could go that way. Or I could look over here at this guy's car. It's like, oh, why did that guy park his car there? You know, it's, it's so cruel. It's like he's, he's like some demon who's come to, to treat me badly. Uh, and I could just see my mind would just react to whatever it was that I looked at. And it was it, because it was in a foul mood because I lost my walking path, and I, you know, I had a, a, an inferior walking path that exposed me to more sunlight. Um, the mood was coloring the, the the kinds of thoughts that would come up. So if I, you know, if I looked at the 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 showers that this retreat center had, I'd see everything wrong with the showers. You know. They'd set these showers up so that that you could um, sort of be almost like you're outdoors. You know, they had this kind of this deck and uh, a wall built with partitions in it, and the showers were, and the whole thing was built on the hillside. So the water just basically ran off the deck onto the hillside and went down the side of the hill. And you had the, this kind of view of the Santa, the Santa Cruz Mountains as you're taking a shower. And of course, the Santa Cruz Mountains had a view of you as you were taking a shower. So anybody who was out there who had you know, interest or in a telescope or binoculars could, could check out the showers if they wanted to. But it's California, so this sort of thing is okay. You know? <laughs> um, so we're providing entertainment for each other, I suppose, in this way. But I would look at the showers and I think, oh, you know, bloody hippies! You know, I just I hate stuff. <laughs> like, why can't they just build a proper shower? So, so my mind could go that way, or it could go, oh, this is so awesome! You know, it's so cool to have this this outdoor shower. Um, and, but it all depends on the mood of the mind and the, and the conditioning of the mind. And I could see this happening real time during the retreat, very clearly. And it was a, it was a little shocking and, and a bit, uh, di bit disheartening because I couldn't seem to, to break this mood that was coloring everything that was coming up. And uh, this went on for several days. But I, 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 you know, I developed enough presence of mind to recognize this is what's happening. And you know, I just I just have to put up with this. Everything that has the nature to arise has a nature to cease. It was caused. It was triggered by a certain contact, and it just has a certain comma, and it has to kind of go on. But as long as I could mindfully be aware of it, then I didn't get lost in the in the thinking. Even though the thoughts would get triggered, I wasn't getting lost in it. And 
you know, if I was sitting with my eyes closed or if I was doing walking meditation, just really paying attention to the sensations of walking, then there'd be periods of time when the thoughts would just completely vanish. And then as soon as I looked at that guy's car, they'd come back again. Right? So, so I was having these experiences of seeing, arising, and passing away of, of thinking. Um, and then at a certain point, the teacher gave a Dhamma talk about metta, and, and it was time to do metta practice. And I remember pretty distinctly <coughs> deciding to forgive that guy for parking in my parking lot, to, to stop making him out as a bad guy. And just like, I, I just found like this inner ability to just it's like say, oh, it's okay. And I'm like, he didn't know that he was putting me out. It's just me having a reaction. It's ridiculous. This is a tempest in a teapot. You know, it's, it's me making a big deal out of something that's not so big of a deal. And, you know, he's just another fellow human being. There's no, it's, it's, it's crazy to hate on that person. Uh, I'm just going to let it go. And so, uh, you know, uh, fellow person, you know, I, I forgive you uh, for parking there. Uh, you know, not that you require my forgiveness, but I'm just letting it go, which is what forgiveness really is. It's like it's kind of an inner decision to let go of one's entanglement with something that one found unpleasant or offensive or uh, hurtful. Because the event itself is in the past. And what's happening right now is your entanglement, mental entanglement in the present. And that's no fun. And I could see it very clearly because I was on retreat. And so when I, when I made this determination to just like let this go, then when I look at the guy's car, a little bit of that stuff would come up and I go, but I let it go, right? And, then, and it would kind of fade away. And then I look at it again and I go, well, you know, I, I, he's, he's getting the benefit of the shade. I mean, his car is staying cooler. The car will last longer because of that. When he has to drive it, it'll be cooler when he gets in. That's good. I'm starting to feel happy for him that he had this, such a nice spot to park. It's almost like I was saving it for him <laughs> before he came. It's like kind of keeping it occupied. And then when he shows up, you know, He's, you know, my, my friend gets to have this, this shady spot. I'm so glad that he, I saved it for him. So, so by the end of the retreat, I'm, I'm loving this guy. And I said, he's my friend. He's taught me so much. You know, by parking his car there, he gave this, this tremendous lesson about you know, how the mind gets entangled, the arising of thoughts. Because up until that point, I was just kind of diligently doing the practice. And I didn't, you know, I hadn't really generated any insights. But this event... This guy parking in my parking, uh, my, my walking path, like transformed the retreat for me because it created this uh, challenge and this, uh, this uh, dynamic of, um, uh, that allowed me to see how my mood was coloring the thoughts that were arising, how the mood itself was simply made out of uh, habitual repeated thoughts about the, 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 the event and that event's connection to all the other times in my life that I felt put out disrespected, not taken into consideration, disregarded, etc. So all the other bad things that happened to me were encapsulated in some way in that event and then the, 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 the consequent mood of that, uh, of that mind state um, perpetuated itself by continuous like, re-eruptions of the same kind of thinking. And that I could see that the mood itself had strengthened and weakened as the thinking became more prominent or less prominent. And so, you know, my friend was teaching me all about, like, mental cause and effect. So thoughts, thoughts are one kind of, uh, any individual thought, like, you know, 
he should he should be more considerate. Why did he park there? Why does this always happen to me? You know, why is it, why does it have to? Why couldn't he park in somebody else's? You know, <laughs> like all these kind of whiny internal thoughts. Um, I could see they're you know they're coming up, and each one has a little lifetime, and then it kind of passes away. And but it would it would sort of leave like a bad smell in the mind, a kind of odor, which you know as it, as one thought comes up and another one comes up, it's like a it's this becomes the mood, which is kind of kind of sad, kind of grim, kind of put out, kind of affronted, aversive, angry, um, bitter, resentful mood. Yuck. That's no fun. And by continuing to investigate that mood and continuing to, to watch the thoughts arising and passing away, um, I had a very powerful experience of seeing the, un the conditioned, uh, uh, causal nature of thoughts and moods and the possibility of completely changing it. Uh, and the actuality of that, and that, that that I could see, I got a really deep lesson in clinging there too, because I was clinging to this. I was actually clinging to my suffering. I was clinging to the pain of of being disrespected, of being this guy whose walking path gets parked on. No one else's walking path got parked on. It's just me, because I'm, you know, I've got this kind of special, extra special bad comma, which uh, causes people to park on my walking path as a way of. I don't know, punishing me for something I some something I did in a past life. So so this kind of inner dialogue about you know woe is me was me was it was a, a, a variation on clinging. I'm the mind was clinging to this narrative about my life, about the nature of me, about my about my fate, about the sorts of things that happened to me, about my role in the world, to be the doormat for everybody else's car. And um, it's just the mind having a habit and uh, indulging in that habit. And the habit has this grasping quality because, I guess you could say, because the mind likes to be something. The alternative to not be seems less desirable somehow. Or maybe you could say it's just, um, it's just a deeply ingrained habit that once we get going on it, we don't quite know how to turn it back off again. So if it gets triggered and we start <clears throat> bringing up all these old thoughts and associations and memories that create a certain, like reify a certain identify, identity in our minds, once that kind of comes up, it's hard to kill it. It's hard for it to die. So it's been born and it, now it wants to live and so it keeps propagating itself and to let it go means like it, it's it's going to vanish. So our minds have this habit, you could say, of forever trying to be someone. And it almost doesn't matter who, really. Uh, we've got a, a whole package of personas that we can we can be. We can be the, the you know the, uh, the funny one, or the, the 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 morose one, the serious one. The happy one, the playful one, the, the loving one, the the, uh, the absurd one, the disrespected one, the disliked one. We can take on all these different identities. We become the the uh, <laughs> the object of our own subjectiveness. And the mind 
It does that. It's just one of its functions, you could say, is to identify with stuff, and identification always requires this kind of perpetuation of a certain streaming of thoughts. <clears throat> so one, one, it's like uh, uh, one candle lighting another candle. There's a, an inversion of that idea that if you've got a light, share it with others by lighting their candle. So one thought moment of, you know, oh, woe is me, if left to itself, would just go away. It just like it would last for a while and then it would fade away. But what we do with our minds is we use that that the presence of that one to like light another one so that that one will burn for a while and then we light another one. That one burns for a while. We light another one. We keep lighting, uh, bringing up additional thoughts that reinforce the original thought or or, or ver validate and uh, support and perpetuate the mood, the viewpoint and the feeling of that original thought that, that carries with it this, this payload of identity that we can attach to. And because the mind has an, a habit of attaching to this identity, um, even if it's not one that's any fun, like you know, the, the kind of the, 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 the impoverished one or the, the disrespected one <clears throat> or the lesser one, uh, any one of these ones that we're being, uh, even though it's not, it's not a fun place to be, um, that's what the mind is being, and being is what it does. It's, it's, it's grasping at something, and it, it's not accustomed to, it doesn't have good uh, like mental hygiene to be able to let go of something that's not, that's not uh, at least I didn't have that, anything like that at the time. So when we, when we practice the Dhamma, we're teaching ourselves about how our minds operate in this way. And when we reflect on our lives, when we look back at 2018, um, if we if we pick out something bad that happened, and we're not careful, we could again reignite a whole stream of uh, negative thought formations about uh, how inadequate we are, how what a failure, what you know, how how deficient we are as a human being. And so the 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 practice involves recognizing this propensity of the mind. Uh, it likes being someone. And until you get to the to the place where you can simply let go of any form of identity ever, which maybe is further further down the path, um, it, it's to your uh, you know greatly to your benefit to uh, recognize this tendency of the mind. And if you're going to be someone, be someone uh, who's uh, happy, <laughs> and be someone who's who's got wholesome mind states. Uh, <clears throat> let the mind perpetuate on those things. And uh, because the mind, you could say, is built out of these habits, uh, our practice, to a great degree, is simply uh, doing the, the kind of the gritty work of seeing our bad habits, making an effort to abandon our bad habits, recognizing the possibility of good habits, practicing good habits, evoking good habits, looking for all the opportunities to focus the mind in a good way rather than let it slide into its habitual ruts that might not be so good. And over time, this gets, this gets easier. And so this is one of the conundrums of Buddhist practice or, or mental training of any sort, is the skills and abilities that you will develop further down, uh, further down the path Make it easier and easier, more graceful, more, more, more natural, 
to do the practices of, of this mental hygiene, of keeping the mind from dwelling on things that aren't helpful. Um, but the very skills and abilities that you need to get the mind to not dwell on things that are not helpful, you don't have at the beginning. And so it's, a very, it's initially a very hit or miss kind of an affair. And it, maybe it doesn't feel like it's a very effective, and you don't know what you're doing, you don't know how to do it. But you just, um, if you want to make any progress, you simply have to bear with that initial uh, and maybe recurring uh, awkwardness, mechanicalness, uh, alienness of trying to get the mind to point itself at something uh, non-habitual. So say you've got a, a bad habit of always feeling like the world is constantly abusing you and everything kind of more or less goes wrong all the time. Uh, this, you know, I guarantee you, you know, actually if you're here right now, your life is fantastic mm -hmm. compared to most lives, uh, human lives that have ever been lived in the world, right? So if it seems like the world is actually kind of constantly serving up a, a, you know, a load of abuse, it's, it's simply delusion. You know? like, like, trust me on this, right? <laughs> right? You just have, you have to step back from your life, and sometimes it can be helpful to look at uh, look at how humans have lived historically. Uh, there's a good book in this regard that I can recommend. It's by a, a, an author by the name of Steven Pinker, who's a, a, a professor at Harvard. He wrote a book called The, uh, the Better Angels of Our Nature. And this is a book which, in which uh, Professor Pinker explores uh, the process of progress in the human realm going back many, many centuries. And what he, what uh, Professor Pinker does is he, 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 to the best of his uh, best of scholarly ability, gathers statistics about things like, oh, lifespan, health, uh, economic opportunity, uh, uh, gross domestic product, the, the ca uh, individual disposable capital, uh, opportunities for education, <coughs> opportunities for women. Uh, 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 the possibility of encountering physical violence on a daily basis, uh, the possibility of war, the possibility of dying through violence, like any, like any possible human measure of human welfare, he's tried to create a category and a way of measuring it and then track statistics over time. And on every single one of these measures, things are vastly better now than they've ever been in human history. You can't go back even 20 years and find a better time, much less 120 years or 220 years or 2,000 years back. Every possible measure of human welfare, when you measure it objectively, not subjectively, but just objectively, things are vastly better now. So if you feel like your world is you know, full of violence and misery and injustice, and, and on a personal level, it's, it's just one you know, terrible thing after another. If you're ever feeling like that, read this book. Read a couple chapters about what it was like in the 12th century, and you'll just, you'll start kissing the ground. I mean, it's, it's so much better now, trust me. So, uh, and then in your personal life, trust me that uh, the habits of the mind that make the world seem like it's a bad place, or seem like things are always going wrong, or seem like you're, like, um, it's, it's a sad, miserable existence that we have to bear up with. Um, it's just the mind telling you that. It's not, actually the, it's not actually the truth. The mind fabricates the reality that we live in. You can, you, can, you can recognize that's objectively true, especially for other people. 
but you have to really see that it's true for yourself as well. Uh, when you when you believe this, when you when you understand it intellectually, that can give you like enough motivation to try out these these practices of the Buddha. Uh, he's he's framed it many many different ways. Uh, um, the five precepts are practices of this kind of mental hygiene. Of, restraining oneself from contributing to the misery of the world by following these five precepts. When you do it, when you do it diligently, when you, when you don't speak or act uh, in any way that's harmful to others, you restrain yourself whenever the opportunity to, to say something nasty or mean or unpleasant or insulting or cutting or anything like that or untrue. When you restrain that, um, you make the world a better place. And when you do, when you kind of go against the grain and you say something which is nice or friendly or kind or helpful or supportive, um, you're also contributing to the welfare of the world. And when you do those two things, restraining the negative and promoting the positive, that's mental training. You're kind of going against the grain of the habits of the mind. And that mental training changes the way that you feel about yourself and your world. And the more you do it, the more thoroughgoingly you apply this to every aspect of your life, uh, the more it transforms your inner experience of what life is like. Right? So what life is like has a certain flavor at any given mo moment. And in my moments back in that retreat, a lot of it was you know, bitter, resentful, unhappy, miserable. You know, I'd, I'd hate on this guy and then I'd hate myself for hating him. <laughs> because you know, I think that's not appropriate. I'm, I'm a Buddhist, I'm not supposed to hate people. I'd be hating him anyway. I, like, why is he making me hate him? You know? <laughs> like I, so the, the mind would just kind of get into this tangled knot of, of unpleasantness. But only by, by consciously redirecting the mind uh, and seeing like, what's good, what's, what's also true that's here, that's positive, what's actually not so bad about the current situation, what's, what's acceptable about it. Um, maybe considering the, the, the sufferings and the virtues of other people in a more objective way. And, um, and forgiving them for all the little things, all the things large and small that, that, that they've done, reckoning that they're subject to the exact same mental processes that you are. That their, their delusion and their hatred and their anger and their bitterness and their sleepiness and they're, they're ignoring what's right in front of their face. Same thing's going on for them as it's going on for you and has been going on all this time. So when you see your own mental activities and your own mental habits that create your own misery, and when you're miserable and you're suffering, you can't really pay that much attention to what's going on around you. So for sure, the more that you're suffering, the more you're kind of creating suffering around you because of your your, your anger and your withdrawal and your, 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 the scowl on your face and the body language and just the cloud hanging over your head, all that's not helping, right? Even though you don't, it doesn't seem like you can help it, even though it seems like it's just part of your, your character, it's, it's who you are, it's not really. It's just, it's just a bunch of bad mental habits. And they're all subject to transformation. They can all be, uh, they, every one of these aspects of our existence uh, thoughts, memories, moods, uh, emotions, reactions, ideas, beliefs, they can all be sort of looked at from, from a, a different perspective, a, 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 a step back. Rather than inhabiting them and being them, we can look at them as simply mental objects that are rising and passing away. And when we recognize their flavor, the flavor is an unwholesome flavor, we can make an effort to say, okay, I'm, you know, this isn't helping, I'm just going to drop this. 
and you can you can almost feel that when the when the mind's willing to drop it, part of you's like, oh, I don't know if I can, you know, I don't want to. <laughs> like part of you doesn't really want to drop, even though it's not fun, even though it's not wholesome. Um, but like you have to kind of give something up, and that giving up of something leaves a, a bit of a void that you should immediately fill as best you can with something really positive. Right? See, so even the decision to turn away from what's unwholesome and redirect your attention towards something's wholesome is going to feel a little resistance will be there. It won't necessarily be fun or easy to make that, to repoint the, the rudder in that way. But if you do it, and once you get into the new groove of like looking at the positive, thinking about how the other person is um, someone's son, someone's probably someone's brother, someone's friend, uh, is probably working, is, you know, is probably contributing to the world in many positive ways, is part of the whole network of society, wants to be happy just like I. So you, kind of, you can look at any person and sort of see these qualities of humanity that you share in common. And reflecting on those things takes you away from your focus on the negative. And that's all that's really ever in front of us, a mixture of things that we could focus on that would either uh, provoke wholesome mind states or provoke unwholesome mind states. A vast assortment of possibilities. Because our minds, you could say, are, have been uh, brought through a, uh, this evolutionary process that gives us these human minds that are interested in survival and reproduction, we tend to view the world in terms of, uh, you could say, opportunities and threat assessment. And neither one of those is particularly generous. Uh, but they're, they're, they're powerful forces in the mind, and that, that's the basis of a lot of our negative mind states, is basically greed and opportunity and threat assessment, fear, or aversion, right? so, 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 or hatred. So th these are, these are, the Buddha calls these delusions. Right? These, are the, these are forces in the mind that if we, if we simply surrender to them unconsciously, they will drive our minds into really dark negative places. Uh, and, and it's up to us to clean, that, clean up that, that operation, uh, degrease it a little bit, and, and you know, sweep it out, and tidy everything up, get it all neat. Uh, and then the, the mind that we, that we have to coexist with uh, is no longer creating trouble for us. We no longer have to suffer all the time. Um, when this becomes habitual and graceful, uh, we have a bit of a facility with it, then the next time somebody parks on our walking path, our, our, well, there might be like initial thoughts that come up that are of that same moody flavor that we know is unwholesome. But our, our almost instantaneous reaction would be to say, oh, I know where that goes. That's no fun. I'm going to drop it right now. I'm happy that guy got that spot. You know, if I was driving along and I saw that spot, I'd want to park my car there too. It's okay. I would have done the same thing. And just and then the mind's able to move on. It doesn't get stuck. That's mostly what causes us to suffer, is that is the stickiness of our thoughts, the stickiness of our, our habits, of our mind. So this lightens everything up and allows us to sort of slip around all of our negative moods and, and tendencies of mind. It doesn't mean that they'll go away permanently and forever, but it does mean that we no longer get stuck in them, we no longer have to get trapped. And it comes about entirely through practice. That is, practicing seeing stuff come up, practicing dropping stuff, 
practicing taking on something new. So this is the practice that we've been doing. Just here tonight, trying to meditate. We're trying to direct our mind towards something wholesome and trying to abandon the unwholesome. To the extent that you were able to do that in 2018, you should be so proud of yourself. And uh, in, to, in, insofar as you, you haven't fully succeeded yet, well, there's so much more to look forward to. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> so so that it doesn't have to be anything negative about 2018 and nothing, nothing to worry about for 2019. It's just going to be a continuous series of opportunities to purify the mind and to focus on the wholesome and abandon the unwholesome. And we're so lucky to have this opportunity. We should just be you know, thanking our lucky stars every minute of every day of 2019. So that's my New Year's message for your consideration. Andamayang dhamma vakataya sadhu karang dadamase